wish I was a mole in the ground If I was a mole in the ground I'd root that mountain down And I wish I was a mole in the ground Good morning. You are tuned to KBOO Portland, your community radio in the time of coronavirus. And it's time now for the Old Mole Variety Hour, a Monday morning radio zine coming to you from an intersectional, socialist, feminist, anti-colonial, and anti-racist perspective. I am Patricia Kulberg, your host. Today, I would like to dedicate our show to all the doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers on the front lines who are risking their very lives in the absence of adequate personal protective equipment to care for those who are stricken with COVID-19. To explain why the richest country in the world faces a deadly shortage of masks, for example, you only need to look to the market forces that push production overseas to take advantage of cheap labor and, at the same time, reduce domestic inventory for a cheaper, just-in-time supply chain. Then, when the pandemic broke out, the overseas supply started to dry up as producing countries, desperate for the masks themselves, began to impose export restrictions. It was a perfect capitalist storm. Not much inventory, because warehouses cost money, reduced capacity to make our own due to offshoring of production, and suddenly, no more imports. On the Old Mole today, movie moles Jan Hawken and Denise Morris will review the film Contagion, a 2011 blockbuster movie about a fictional pandemic. Book mole Larry Bolden will share his thoughts on the novel Butterfly Girl by Portland's own Renee Denfeld. And Tom Becker, the well-read Red, will read excerpts from an article about the coronavirus and human rights by Catherine Rotenberg and Nev Gordon. We'll close the show today with a very special piece of music by two doctors on the front lines of the pandemic. To begin our show, in the first of a two-part interview, Bill Resnick speaks with microbiologist Dr. Michael Friedman. Dr. Friedman teaches at the American International College of Arts and Sciences in Antigua and studies the relationship between environmental degradation and the emergence of human pathogens like COVID-19. Dr. Friedman will discuss how deforestation and declining biodiversity coupled with live animal markets set the stage for the transfer of the virus from animal to human. Michael Friedman, welcome to KBU. Thanks, Bill. I'm happy to join you again. Mike Friedman is an evolutionary biologist studying microbes, uh, teaches and writes in the biology department at the University of Antigua Barbuda in, in the Caribbean. For the last several years, he's been studying and writing on the development of dangerous viruses around the planet, including COVID-19. That respiratory disease has now been detected in way, way over 100,000 people in this country, uh, growing every day, killed many, many. Um, this is being re pre-recorded. It'll probably be over five or 6,000 by the time it's played, with many more to come. Um, 
this country now leads the world in detected cases, including China, and it's going to and it's going to really overlap maybe all cases in the world, unless we change our ways. Trumpism changes its ways quickly, including we passed China, where it first developed, and after a bit of delay, took strong action and appears to have stopped the spread. Today, we're going to discuss the COVID virus. And several other serious viruses like Ebola, SARS, MERS, and others, uh, how they originated in animals and then transmitted to humans. And then we'll discuss why they're so dangerous to populations who never experienced them before. Based on this knowledge about how they originated and why they're so dangerous, what can be done to stop the spread that in the, in the short term, which unfortunately, indeed catastrophically, the Trump administration did not do, it did not emulate China and Korea. All this knowledge gives us a base for seeing what need be done in the long term to make sure that fewer viruses develop and are transmitted to humans, which also very unfortunately, and it's not just the Trump administration, very unfortunately, no country on this planet is ready to do now. Why? Because that would require mobilizing very considerable amounts of money and resources. And that, of course, would interrupt the flow of money and power in the world. Uh, it's now going to the world's political and economic elites. We'll be talking about that, too. First, Mike Friedman, tell us first why COVID, how COVID-19 originated and uh, gets transmitted. And, and then we'll get to what are the qualities that make it so dangerous. For the past several decades now, there's been a, an uptick in these emerging diseases. And um, these diseases are true products of the Anthropocene. That is, um, as John Bellamy Foster would say, of the uh, metabolic rift that capital introduces into relationships between humans and our ecosystems and the biosphere. I mean, there have always been transfers of diseases from animals to humans and probably back the other way too. For example, rabies or for example, the bubonic plague. But in the past three or four decades, this has, and epidemiologists have made note of this, this has increased sharply. And I, I think we can go back probably before, but at least to HIV, which was transferred from primates to humans. And the way I look at this, there are several ways in which the Anthropocene, that is human or capitals, uh, disruption of the biosphere plays itself out in these diseases, these outbreaks. One of the ones of interest to me is how deforestation and the decline of biodiversity has facilitated the spread of these diseases. And we're talking about diseases from HIV to Lyme disease, to Ebola, to Zika, to hentavirus, now yep. to coronavirus. There is a, a well-known area of ecology called Biodiversity and Ecosystem Functions and Services. It's an area of ecology which began developing about 20 years ago. And it studies how biodiversity contributes to various functions that kind of shape an ecosystem. We're talking about things like carbon storage or net productivity. We're talking about things like resilience, the ability to bounce back. And we're talking about things like resistance to invasion by pests and pathogens. 
what this all means is that scientists have found that diseases will spread through a community, an ecological community, much more easily when biodiversity has been reduced. So this is one thing to keep in mind. Biodiversity, by and large, on our planet is being reduced. We're faced with habitat destruction, deforestation, contamination of habitats, and so on. And what this means is that many, many species or populations of these species are disappearing. Now, there are various ways that this works out within a community. First of all, you're eliminating predators and competitors of normal hosts for a lot of viruses and bacteria. Second of all, you are eliminating organisms that compete with hosts, or I should say alternative hosts for a lot of pathogens. This is what they call the dilution effect. In a natural environment, Lyme disease affects more than just deer mice. It affects squirrels, it affects other organisms, but these other organisms are not necessarily the best host for the bug. The bug hasn't adapted to as efficiently to these hosts, and so it may not be able to reproduce in them, or it may not be able to make the connection with vectors like ticks and so on. So when you have a robust ecosystem, you kind of have hosts being diluted out, and this prevents the easy spread of pathogens. And we notice this in humans. In epidemiology, for example, we're talking about social isolation. And social isolation is essentially the same phenomena. We're spreading out hosts. These are some of the ways that biodiversity decline actually enhances the possibility of transmission of these bugs. Now you have reduced biodiversity and often the organisms, and this is what happened in the case of Lyme, for example, or in the case of Henta, or in the case, which I'll explain, of COVID-19, you have the situation where the organisms that survive biodiversity decline are opportunistic species. They're what we would call we would call generalists, things like bats or rats or mice. And these, these organisms proliferate, and they proliferate in areas where biodiversity has been reduced, where there's been deforestation, where human settlements are kind of creating edge environments. So, for example, the deer mice proliferated in grassy fields in the suburbs that were created when real estate development took place. Or... Bats proliferated in West Africa, where oil palm plantations were put in and replaced forests. So now you have greater contact between humans and the original hosts as well. So in the case of COVID-19, you have a, um, you had a situation. And if you look actually, to digress in a minute, if you look at Hubei province in China, where Wuhan is located, that has been the most rapidly industrializing area in China for the past century. And um, it's had a very high rate of deforestation. And there are parallels with what happened to Lyme disease there. So now you have an affected pool of animals, of bats or of pangolins. And these organisms, these mammals, have been carrying the virus for a long time. I mean, basically, it's co-evolved with bats so that it doesn't harm the bat, the bat can, can put up with the, uh, with the virus. But when it transfers to other mammals, there is the potential for it to become deadly, to become virulent. So there are two theories about 
how bats transferred the, the virus to people. One is that it transferred from an isolated population of bats, and I should point out that bats has not been properly sampled, um, so we don't have samples from, from all populations of horseshoe bats. The other theory is that it made the transfer earlier, the virus made the transfer to humans earlier, but it hadn't mutated to its virulent form, so it wasn't picked up. Um, and this could have happened months ago. So the thing about the genetic makeup of the virus is that in bats, like I said, the virus is adapted to entering bat cells, and bats' immune system is evolved to deal with it. And another factor that occurs is that over time, a pathogen often will co-adapt with a host under natural selection so it doesn't kill the host because it's kind of disadvantageous under most circumstances for the, for the pathogen to be automatically fatal. So the two ideas then are that either it transferred from a population of bats directly or it transferred earlier and uh, it mutated in humans. And there's also a possibility that pangolins picked up um, the virus en route either simultaneously or became an intermediate. Now, one way this would have worked out is through wet markets like in Wuhan, where there are cages of animals stacked one on top of the other, live animals. So basically you have animals on the top, top layer defecating and urinating and sneezing and coughing or whatever and infecting the animals below them. And you're talking about animals that are never in contact with each other in the natural environment. And then you're talking about people who are managing the animals. We're not talking about eating bats. We're talking about being in proximity with animals in the presence of a virus, which is transmitted readily by aerosol, by droplets sneezed out or coughed out or in the process of talking or whatever in humans. So the, the virus is very readily transmitted. Right. This is Bill Resnick uh, for Cable Radio, Portland, Oregon, and in the time of the uh, COVID epidemic. Talking to Mike Friedman about that epidemic, we discussed how COVID and the others uh, originated and were, were transmitted to humans. Mike, tell us why now it's so dangerous for humans. Why is this virus that, in fact, only kills maybe 3 or 2 or 1% of the people who get it, somewhat like the, the a common flu. But why is this so much more dangerous than the uh, common flu virus? First of all, we don't know very much about it. I mean, the scientists were kind of sketchily looking in on um, the original SARS and have long kind of looked at the common cold, which are both coronaviruses. Research on the common cold wasn't profitable, so it really, you know, it was not followed up. It's also not a very threatening condition. SARS and Mercovirus, though, two other coronaviruses, were deadly, and there had been some research on them, but they managed to control them fairly quickly as a result of suppression methods in epidemiology. Like the Ebola epidemic, they were controlled pretty quickly. Yeah, Ebola, though, keeps popping up, and that's Again, it's an issue of bringing humans into proximity. Well, it's, an, it's a broad issue. It involves the lack of, of medical and health resources available to people, particularly in African countries and the 
continuing encroachment on natural environments and so on. But getting back to why the virus is deadly, so you have a relatively unknown pathogen, and you have a pathogen which has a higher rate of transmission than the flu and has higher mortality than the flu. And also you have, when you say that mortality is only 3%, keep in mind that that's an average, and it varies by country, and it varies by access to health, to healthy lifestyles, healthy environments, and health infrastructure. And it varies particularly by age structure of the population. So you have mortality up to 18, 19% for people over, what, over 80, I believe it was. But actually, it's probably higher than that at this point. So these, these are some of the reasons why why it's of such concern. And I would say the principal problem is its rate of transmission. The um, coronavirus can transmit to about three, well, the they figure is that seems to be the average is each person can, will transmit to 3.5 other individuals. So you're talking about an exponential increase in infected people. Another reason we should get into, we didn't have any prior immunity to to the flu and to many others, we have developed immunity and then developed vaccines to create immunity, but we have no vaccines that in fact work. We don't believe we have any vaccines that work. Some may have some minor effects, some substances, but they're not gonna stop the disease. Part of it is that it's spreading so quickly the transmission is really easy, droplets in the air and or touching, and find it gets into our body one way or another. Um, but part of it is that we we didn't develop immunity in the population to these to the viruses. Right. I mean, it's it's a new virus in on the scene, as it were. So it's exploded onto the world stage very quickly. And because it transferred fairly quickly from other animal hosts, we don't have an immune response to it. But there are also biological factors to take into account. For example, viruses will mutate, as we know from the flu. Every season, we need a new flu vaccine. So the viruses will mutate, and we don't know the mutation rate. So now, coronavirus seems to be fairly stable in terms of mutations. There have been one or two nucleotides that have mutated as it's spread out, which allows us to track strains. But mutation rate at this point, where there is no selection and where it's easy pickings for the virus, the mutation rate seems fairly stable. But that's something to take into account. Another thing we, we will need to take into account, and this gets into testing, which you're gonna to wanna to talk about later, I guess, up to 80% of the virus cases are undiagnosed. And these are cases which have the ability to transmit the virus. So this poses another challenge from a medical point of view to properly containing it. This is why um, quarantine and other measures are so necessary. We don't necessarily know that you have the virus, but if you're staying in your home, you're not going to transmit. If you potentially do, you're not going to transmit it to someone else. Because we uh, don't have tests, nor have we developed the capacity, well, nor have we used the capacity to apparently under the Trump administration uh, put a lot of effort very quickly into developing those tests as they did in Korea. 
we are much, much, much more vulnerable. In the next show, we'll be Mike Friedman and I will be talking about the short-term ways to stop the virus that the Trump administration has not not invoked. A few states are desperately trying. Now more and more states, but it's very late in the game, um, and we still don't have a test. And we'll also be talking about the long-term way of thinking about how we greatly limit the possibilities of a viral pandemic killing uh, like the plague and others, the Spanish flu. Now maybe in the world, this one killing millions and millions of people. Mike, good talking to you. And we'll get back to those other issues on next week's Old Mo Variety Hour on cable next week, Monday at 9. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thank you, Bill. It was nice to talk to you. There's foreboding in the air, waiting for an earthquake. Pandemic spreading, no telling how it might remake a world so divided in so many, many ways. Anyone can see it's no way to greet such days when you can shut your borders, but it'll barely slow the spread with a million people homeless and not enough hospital beds. In times like these, we find out that a society is only just as strong as our solidarity. The foreboding in the air can get only thicker as we see our leaders passing blame and getting sicker. A crashing economy, leaders fought with indecision, only capable of thinking like bought-off politicians. Not enough testing kits and the one you got were broken But hey, the president has spoken In times like these we find out that a society Is only just as strong as our solidarity That music clip was from a newly composed song by David Rovix called Viral Solidarity. Before that, Bill Resnick was speaking with Dr. Michael Friedman about the emergence of the COVID-19 virus. Next week, in part two of this interview, Bill will speak further with Dr. Friedman about strategies for containment of newly emerging pathogens. And now, movie moles, Jan Hocken and Denise Morris, talk about Contagion, the 2011 film directed by Steven Soderbergh about a deadly worldwide virus outbreak that has generated a huge upsurge in public interest in recent weeks. The film has been praised for its medical authenticity and its eerie prescience in forecasting some of the pathways of the corona pandemic. Jan and Denise provide their own reading of the film, including how the film portrays group dynamics of the pandemic and the limits of this Hollywood cautionary tale. When it comes to disaster films, Hollywood has left no stone unturned. From earthquakes, fires, and sea monsters to ships, blimps, and airplanes, the disaster film is a tried-and-true American tradition. No film has been viewed more in recent weeks than Steven Soderbergh's 2011 thriller Contagion. Contagion employs a long list of known Hollywood actors, including Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, Lawrence Fishburne, Kate Winslet, Jude Law, 
and many others to tell the story of the deadly outbreak of a highly contagious virus and its eventual defeat. Old mole and retired professor of psychology Jan Hawken rightly jumped on the contagion bandwagon, seeing an opportunity to provide a psychological reading of the film's themes. This morning, we offer the first in a series of discussions centered around psychology, public health, and the crises we face as the coronavirus pandemic unfolds. This is an edited version of a longer discussion. You can hear the full review of Contagion later this week on kboo.fm Old Mole Variety Hour. Jan, the film Contagion is one of the most popular films on Netflix, and I believe it's streaming in other platforms. It is from 2011, and people are devouring it as if it is part of our current landscape. And it is, because the film depicts in detail, from the perspective of science and public health, what happens when we have a major outbreak and the resulting paranoia, fear, anxiety that happens in the public. And you, as a psychologist, thought this would be a really fun one for us to review and we have some thoughts on it. Yeah, I think it's different from many Hollywood films about disasters that and insidious threats that are very tied into the paranoid elements of the human psyche. We all have not just people who are psychotic, but everyday people have tendencies towards paranoia where something you notice attend to it more and it becomes more menacing in your imagination than the threat is in reality. So there's always this task throughout life of assessing threats and the potential for magnifying a threat that really is pretty benign. And that's part of prejudices. It's part of overreactions of various sorts. And I think we're drawn into this film because it begins with what seem to be these very banal, everyday interactions. You know, a woman executive leaves a bar in a hotel and the camera lingers as she engages in very everyday interactions. And now we look at those innocent, the the quotidian aspects of daily life very differently now because we're looking at the film itself through a different lens. But it is partly at the time about the paranoid, obsessive aspects of human life and how often the paranoid and the obsessive way of being phobic about germs or shunning interaction that in this film, the cautionary tale is they're right. (laughs) Things are very dangerous out there. Everyday interactions are far more dangerous than we had thought. The film, though, follows this through also a scientific gaze, uh, follows the pandemic as an impersonal disease, a virus spreading insidiously. But that virus and its transmission through very everyday innocent interactions is itself the main character. I think more than heroes and villains in this story, it's about uh, the spread of a disease and human efforts to confront and contain it that is the, the main character itself. It really does resonate as we become more and more globally connected with one another. On the most basic level, it also says a lot about how we engage with our own bodies in public space. Hand washing has never been more popular 
it's also this back door to the world of science, the bureaucracy, the pursuit and interest and dedication along with the obstacles and concerns about impacts like economy, who's protected, who will not be protected. In the film, it really doesn't go into a lot of the deeper politics. It really is a very focused. Yeah, and the heroes really are the scientists. And I think that is important in this period we live in as medical providers are in many ways the heroes of this time. So I think that's part of what resonates with people. Many of the lead protagonists are are women doctors who are selfless and take enormous risks to protect patients. And there's a lot about Mm -hmm. vaccine paranoia. The the one villain in this is peddling a naturopathic remedy and makes a lot of money off of it. There's a Mm -hmm. a little side plot about anti-vaccine paranoia that was satisfying (laughs) for you in that a lot of the anti-vacciners have done tremendous harm in arguing that routine vaccines in childhood cause autism. And and there's been Mm -hmm. quite a bit of discussion about how irresponsible that is. So I think the politics of vaccine play an important and and interesting role. It's more dramatic and misleading in ways that explain public panic in the film. It's, It's different from the coronavirus pandemic because, you know, in the film, the virus becomes lethal very, very quickly. Millions of people are killed very, very quickly and fall over abruptly with seizures. And so, you know, the Hollywood convention of having to see, there's a lot of gruesomeness around that. How to also dramatize the way in which, for most people, in in response to a a public crisis, looting and fighting and fleeing are are not the, the only or even the main responses. People tend to be fairly cooperative as a kind of instinctual response, come together in groups. Of course, we can't do that mm-hmm. now physically, but it's harder, I guess, to make a film about what's inspiring and the possibilities now, the time we're living in. In the contagion, we also have a denouement resting solely on the rush for a cure, and looting and rationing of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And then the the assumption, as it is in disaster films, is that the end, your fears and anxieties are contained by the containing of the threat, and you know, normal life resumes. But the message of the film is that a crisis arises, smart, helpful people <laughs> rise to the occasion, find a cure, and then you resume normalcy. And I think crises have arisen historically where the post-epidemic or pandemic or crisis, it was really a different world. You know, after World War One and after World War Two, there were profoundly different dynamics to how people thought about the society and the, the distribution of power. So this contagion in that sense is a, a conservative story, even though it, its heroes are true heroes we're feeling now, but in other ways, it's based on this idea of the restoration of a previous state of normalcy. 
Right, I agree, and I think that the focus on the heroic government institution, the ongoing mistrust of pharmaceutical companies play a role in how people understand the worthiness and usefulness or utility of vaccines. There's a whole public discourse around this that is steeped in a lot of really deep mistrust of government and government agencies and the economic power that comes from the creation and distribution of these vaccines or any sort of medical care that we need is, you know, even further entrenched in in profit and capitalism. Yeah, it was not that kind of film yeah, at no, all. <laughs> I mean, it was the everyday human reaching out to touch someone. And, of course, a woman businesswoman having an affair abroad, you know nothing good's going to come of her. <laughs> Lingering at a bar and uh, having a good time and yeah. comes home and dies and kill, kills her son indirectly. <laughs> right. So her surviving yeah. husband is uh, in the film allowed a, a very brief moment of mourning and then everybody marches on. We were talking about the human transmission of the virus, but you were also raising the question about the whole economic political system that itself becomes the transmission of a virus, which is part of what we're seeing now, the failure of public health, the hollowing out of our medical system, how flimsy and inadequate <clears throat> any kind of safety net is that we have here. You know, in the mm-hmm. in the film, Gwyneth Paltrow was a wealthy person who died very quickly, and and then there are millions of people who, who died that we don't see represented, but, mm-hmm. you know, the the way in which the economics and the public health aspects and the social class aspects of, of pandemics and who gets ill and dies and who who's more or less at risk than others was not part of the story here. But it's certainly mm-hmm. part of the story of what we're living. And the question about immunity and who's immune and who's not immune becomes in our current situation a metaphor for the immunity that is not afforded to people who are marginal and on the fringe, either in the U.S. or around the world as a result of austerity and, as you said, the hollowing out of our medical systems. In contagion, there are people who have a natural immunity, who don't get sick, and then there's everybody else, as I recall. Mm -hmm. But vulnerabilities to diseases are far more associated with other known factors around health, around people who are living in situations where they're more vulnerable. Right. So Hollywood offers some protective identifications when you watch things that are scary like this, and that that's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. Hollywood is a machine that restores order and normalcy, and we see that in this film. The first 20 minutes or 30 minutes I found to be the best part of the film, and it was where Soderbergh does this thing that he does really well, focusing in on these characters. That social labor that is not the main part of the film, but you get glimpses of that, Mm -hmm. and often it's work assigned to women. And now with the pandemic, I think one of the important dynamics of this terrible situation is how much caregiving work the work of people who provide dependent care, provide and 
service jobs of many kinds, many people are aware of how dependent they are mm-hmm. on others who serve them. And yes. invisible, what, what Ivan Illich calls shadow labor, the labor you never see and unless it's not done. Well, we're seeing a lot of shadow labor coming up from under the shadows, which is a good thing. And in Contagion, you only get glimpses of that, of mm-hmm. all of what, important to do when you have a a really a big public health crisis it's not just doctors and scientists rushing in to to solve the problem which is part of it but all of the everyday labor and work of people to keep things going we now know we do depend on good science and i think in recent years the disregard and abandonment of basic science by the Republicans and the conservatives is horrifying to most of us. (laughs) And the disregard for medical science. And so a big part of the crisis we're in now is related to ignoring science and ignoring public health and the many people who work in our government and through agencies who've kept things going, including during government shutdowns, during the hollowing out of so many government services. Mm -hmm. And yet a lot of us who have histories of critiquing science and struggles within science and critiquing experts, you know, it's tricky business Mm -hmm. how you go after pharmaceutical companies and on what grounds, how you go after different farming practices, which science you draw on. And I think there is also in the left an unhelpful paranoia about science and Mm -hmm. conspiratorial tendencies that we need to be really careful about. At the same time, films like this champion science in a way that is oversimplified. Right. I agree with that. And we will be continuing to look at Hollywood, even as Hollywood itself is shut down. The magic of streaming will allow us to continue our discussions on the portrayal of these kinds of crises in the media and their impacts, both psychologically and in other ways. musical clip was a song from the movie's soundtrack entitled Handshake by Cliff Martinez. Before that, Jan Hawken and Denise Morris discussed the movie Contagion and what lessons we might take from the film. Next up this morning, we have book mole Larry Bolden, who reviews Renee Denfield's latest novel, The Butterfly Girl. Denfeld displays once again her skills as an author and her deep understanding of and compassion for street people, especially homeless children. 
Celia, the butterfly girl, living on the streets with her equally vulnerable child friends, imagines butterflies as her guardians in all hues and shapes. It's an enchanting novel that tells the truth about the horrors homeless children face and yet manages to give the reader hope. This is Patricia Kohlberg for the Old Mole Variety Hour. I am happy to report that Larry is healthy, but during this stay-at-home time of the COVID-19 pandemic, he is unable to record his review at home. I invite our listeners to imagine Larry's voice as I read. I want to talk to you today about a book that is at once extremely sad and incredibly lovely. The book is The Butterfly Girl by Renee Denfeld. Ms. Denfeld is an author, journalist, and licensed public defense investigator. I have previously reviewed her other two novels, The Enchanted, about death row inmates, and The Child Finder. I won't tell you too much about the storyline of The Butterfly Girl since it is a kind of mystery, and I would not want to be a spoiler. There are two primary narrators in this novel, Naomi, an investigator who specializes in finding lost children, and Celia, a 12-year-old girl who lives in a sort of community of street children. Naomi has decided she will not take another case until she finds her younger sister, with whom she was abducted years before. Naomi escaped, but her sister did not. She has no picture of her sister and no name, but she is determined to find her. Naomi remembers very little of her own escape, but one lead has led her to Portland, Oregon, and it is there that she continues her search. Celia is on the run from an abusive stepfather and a mother who is an addict. While she occasionally checks in with her mother, she is afraid to give away her location. I am reading now from the book, quote, Celia disappeared inside herself. She was used to doing that. She could make herself vanish, even as she stood there, just another street urchin with no future in sight. Celia, who believed in nothing but herself in the butterflies, knew that the worst fears of the streets were always real. You can find that out the hard way, or you can be watchful. End quote. Naomi and her husband Jerome are staying with one of Naomi's old friends while Naomi continues her search. She wakens from a dream of still being in captivity and hearing the voice of her sister back there in that place. Quote, she breathed out in relief that the dream was over but still felt the anxious echo of the call. I'm getting closer, she thought. This is why she was here in the city with Jerome. After almost a year of searching for her long-lost sister, their investigation had brought them here. End quote. Celia and her street friends, Rich and Stoner, sleep under an overpass at night and offer each other friendship and what protection they can provide. When Celia first encounters Naomi on the streets, where Naomi is asking questions of street people in hopes of coming up with some leads, Celia does not trust this well-dressed and seemingly assured woman. 
But eventually, as the story unwinds, she begins to trust her, and Naomi, for her part, cannot ignore this streetwise child, even though she is on her own search. Denfeld is an incredible writer. Not simply sympathetic to the street people, her connection is much deeper. She could be describing herself as she describes Naomi during a period in her investigations. Quote, Naomi was standing outside the Aspire shelter. The smeary brick, the narrow streets, the shapes huddled in the doorways, all felt familiar to her now. She has crossed the threshold. The world of the missing had become her own world. She knew the regulars, the bruised cherry alcoholics, the families on nodding acquaintance, the street kids like Celia. End quote. There is no condescension in Denfeld's dealings with the homeless, no us-them dichotomy. No wonder she can create such believable characters, can give the reader views from the inside. As in her novel, The Child Finder, Denfeld is intrigued by and describes meticulously how children who are held captive and cannot escape may create a kind of escape with their minds. Celia escapes via her world of beautiful butterflies, her guides and guardians on the streets. Quote, if you take a burrowing animal and deny it anything but a glass cage, it will break its own claws in the madness to escape. Naomi, who once had no escape, had created one with her mind. End quote. Margaret Atwood, who is herself an amazing and deeply insightful author, says of this book, a heartbreaking, finger-gnawing, and yet ultimately hopeful novel. I have no intention of telling you in what ways the novel is hopeful or of revealing much more of the plot, but I am certain you will find this a socially significant and rewarding read. In her acknowledgments, Denfeld credits libraries for her books and for her salvation. Like many of us, she finds books to be a window into a better world. I have been talking about Renee Denfeld's newest novel, The Butterfly Girl. This is Patricia Kohlberg standing in for Larry Bolden for the Old Mole Variety Hour. Now we turn to Tom Becker, The Well-Read Red. Today, Tom reads from a piece published in Counterpunch by Catherine Rottenberg and Nev Gordon entitled The Coronavirus Conundrum and Human Rights. Rottenberg and Gordon write about the coronavirus pandemic's potential to accelerate the already existent totalitarian drift of governments, both here and abroad, while also arguing for the possibility of a progressive uprising demanding an end to neoliberal and austerity politics. Good morning. If you're like me, you may be becoming weary of the ever-expanding profusion of articles expounding on the possible long-term consequences of the corona pandemic. No self-proclaimed futurist pundit really knows how the world will be transformed on the far side of our current crisis. Nevertheless, with that unpromising preamble, but in the belief that we must remain informed and vigilant, I'm today sharing an article that explores such possible outcomes, some negative, some positive. The article is entitled The Coronavirus Conundrum and Human Rights 
by Catherine Rottenberg and Neve Gordon. These are strange times, the article begins. While the rapid spread of the coronavirus has rendered many of us bewildered and confused, the edict to physically distance ourselves from others has managed to highlight both just how vulnerable and interdependent we are. These are also extremely dangerous times. This is true not only or even primarily due to the deaths of the COVID-19 will cause, but rather due to the policies our governments are introducing or refusing to introduce. As far as we know, physical distancing is very likely the most appropriate response to this pandemic. Yet this distancing is also facilitating an economic meltdown. This conundrum is at the crux of our current crisis and perhaps also causing much of the bewilderment. Since the best remedy for the outbreak itself produces dire effects, potentially much more harmful than those of the virus. In order to mitigate such grim consequences, then, physical distancing must be countered with government social solidarity policies. But as the government's attempt to address the pandemic, we are beginning to witness a twofold approach characterized by governmental overreach on the one hand and by insufficient governmental reach on the other. Both approaches are likely to have dramatic effect on basic human rights for hundreds of millions of people. Indeed, it is no hyperbole to say that many people will suffer and even die as a result of the way governments choose to handle the crisis than from contacting the virus. Once the World Health Organization declared coronavirus a public health emergency of international concern, many countries followed suit. Given the circumstances, these declarations make sense, but we also need to be aware that they tend to unleash formidable executive power. The logic of executive power is straightforward. During a strait of emergency, governments need flexibility to address emerging threats and to exercise all power vested in the state to alleviate the situation. While clearly the consequences of states assuming so much power varies, history teaches that emergency measures are frequently abused and at times become permanent. Indeed, they can provide fertile grounds for widespread human rights violations and may even provoke a transformation from democracy to a totalitarian regime. From China to Israel, governments will require citizens to install smartphone apps, allowing officials to track individuals and determine whether they can leave their homes. In the United Kingdom, the local elections have been postponed by a year, and the police have been given powers to arrest suspected coronavirus carriers. Meanwhile, several countries have used coronavirus pandemic as a justification to stifle social dissent, banning assemblies and protests. The fear is that the rapid adoption of such policies may well be the start of a much broader process curtailing basic political and civil rights. For governments overreach in this way, they must be swiftly resisted. Alongside government overreach, we are also witnessing insufficient governmental intervention, often in one and the same country. As each state passes and more and more countries move to partial or complete lockdown, it becomes clear that we are entering a global recession, necessitating massive government investments to secure the livelihood of millions of people. Millions of people who live hand-to-mouth have already begun losing their monthly salaries, the right to a livelihood, and thus will be unable to pay rent or mortgage or put food on the table, the right to a standard of living. Many of those who become ill do not have paid sick leave, and for those who do, it seldom covers their actual salary. As to the right to health care, we already know from Italy that even relatively robust public health systems find it difficult and increasingly impossible during this pandemic to address the population's needs. And many coronavirus patients and others suffering from ailments not related to the virus will not receive adequate treatment. This is a direct outcome of years of austerity where public health care systems are starved of resources. In countries that do not have public health systems, such as the United States, 
it's extremely likely that the predicament of those people who fall sick will be much, much worse. Governments must adopt a series of progressive policies that are even more radical than those introduced during the New Deal era. Many ideas are floating around, but these are some of the most urgent. One, a living universal income and a freeze on mortgages and rents for people under the poverty line, as well as for those who lose their jobs, the homeless, gig economy workers, the unemployed, and small businesses. Two, Mandatory paid sick leave that matches one's salary so that poor sick people will not feel obliged to go to work. Three, free and comprehensive treatment for coronavirus and potentially related symptoms. No questions asked about immigration status so that no one goes untreated because of fear or poverty. This could entail expanding Medicare to all Americans, for example. Four, government investment in homeless and women's shelters and food banks and massive medical aid to refugees. Ironically, the coronavirus pandemic can also be an opportunity. As the crisis brutally exposes how neoliberal policies implemented over the past 50 years have rendered vast segments of the world's population vulnerable, it can also and should be used to launch a global pushback campaign. Solidarity with the most vulnerable alongside care for our planet can be the guiding principles for massive public investments. Indeed, citizens across the globe must use the crisis to demand the implementation of a Green New Deal. Given the speed with which so many of the emergency measures have been introduced, we now know that dramatic transformation can be carried out, and quickly. The current crisis teaches us that neoliberal capitalism has no way of dealing with pandemics like this one. It is time for a new forward-looking vision for all of our sakes. While these are indeed strange and dangerous times, they can also lead to new beginnings. That was an article by Neva Gordon and Catherine Rottenberg entitled The Coronavirus Conundrum and Human Rights. Neva Gordon is a Marie Curie Fellow and Professor of International Law at Queen's Mary University of London. Catherine Rottenberg is an Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Nottingham. A version of this article was first published in Al Jazeera Online. That was Tom Becker, our well-read read for today, reading from an article in Counterpunch by Catherine Rottenberg and Nev Gordon. And that does it for our show today. I want to thank Moles Bill Resnick, Larry Bolden, Jan Hawken, Denise Morris, and Tom Becker for their contributions today, and a special thanks to our guest, Dr. Michael Friedman. I would also like to thank all the KBU staff who are working tirelessly to keep KBU on the air and bring to you the public affairs and music programming that you've always enjoyed. Every Monday morning, the old mole speaks truth to power, offering a picture of this country from the point of view of the 99% and a vision of a radically democratic world. As always, you can find a downloadable podcast of today's show and its individual segments in a day or two on the KBU website. You can contact us at oldmolevarietyhour at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And now to close our show, here is a recording by two resident physicians working at Mayo Clinic who took time out to offer a musical message of hope. Dr. Elvis Francois, resident physician in orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, is accompanied by fellow physician William Robinson on the piano with this stunning rendition of John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine there's 
Dreamer 